Well, welcome back along to the Freed Thinker podcast. We are beginning a new series today on supposed biblical contradictions. I will be spending several episodes going over Jim Merritt's list of Bible contradictions listed at the Internet Infidel's webpage. I'm also planning on having Nicholas Brzezzi back on uh, during the course of this series to give his response to his top 10 picks from the list, so you can look forward to that. I'm also going to try to have a couple surprise guests on as we go through the series to discuss things like biblical hermeneutics, harmonization, and the role of interpretation in translating the original languages. As you listen to this or any other episodes, I'd encourage you to keep your questions and comments coming. You can message me on my blog at www.logicaltheism.blogspot.com. Don't forget the hyphen, www.logical-theism.blogspot.com. Or on my Facebook group page at www.facebook.com backslash groups backslash the Freed Thinker Podcast. Now, this is, like I said, going to be a response to the list put out by Jim Merritt at the Internet Infidels page at www.infidels.org, and you can just look up Bible contradictions from there. First, we should notice that Jim Merritt, uh, the author of the list, is not a biblical scholar. He's not a historian. He really has no credentials on the subject whatsoever. Now, this does not mean that he's de facto wrong. Amateurs have equal access to the information as everyone else. The problem is that for many of the supposed contradictions on the list, almost all of them in fact, the evidence that merit is more bark than bite. The list itself is a testament to the zealotry, bias, and just total lack of research that typifies Merritt's uh, anti-theistic apologetics. Second, we can notice that all of the sources listed at the bottom of the page are either skeptical works from over a hundred years ago from the skeptical um, community that was kind of flourishing at that time, um, and the works that he cites as Christian defenses are also very out of date. The ones he does cite aren't very academic, and they're often really poor examples of even what Christian scholarship was prior to when apologetics was even a very academic discipline. Not one scholar, commentary, critical or otherwise, or academic work from even the last 40 years is listed among them. Notice also that it's exclusively drawn from the King James Version. For those who listened to the previous who listened to the previous series where I reviewed David McAfee's book, Disproving Christianity and Other Secular Writings, you will surely remember that whenever someone chooses to use the King James Version, a text that is outdated in both its English usages but also in the textual tradition it's that it's a translation from, um, just go awry. It it doesn't it doesn't benefit from over four centuries of highly predictive and successful manuscript discoveries and textual criticism. Third, there is a preface by the editor, someone other than Merritt, or so I assume since it refers to Merritt in the third person, which makes the appeal for the reader to judge the list according to their own reason to discern whether or not these supposed contradictions are in fact actual contradictions. Bravo! We should objectively evaluate the list to the best of our abilities. The problem is what follows is a highly suspect theological assumption that 
basically shows that the editors themselves weren't able to use their reason rightly to discern whether these are supposed contradictions because they're more interested in just disproving the Bible at all costs. It states, quote, it should be kept in mind, however, that a perfect, omnipotent, and omniscient God would reasonably expect it to have done a better job of it than the Bible had such a God inspired a book. End quote. Well, why should we assume that? I mean, what's the basis? It assumes what God would do, even though the author has no clue what God would do given omniscient knowledge. But beyond that, I find it somewhat difficult to understand, and I'm usually skeptical when I hear claims like this, of how someone dedicated to showing the non-existence of God, that the concept of God is a contradiction, that uh, religious beliefs or Christian beliefs in specific are irrational or stupid or zealot or illogical or irrational, all these kinds of things, should be trustworthy in knowing what that kind of God would do if that God existed. It would be like if I said I knew exactly what President Obama would do, even though I've never met the man and do not know him as his family and friends know him, it would become even less plausible a description of his actions or his possible actions if I was known to be a staunch zealot against Obama and everything about him. Now, after the preface by the editors, we now move on to Merritt's own introduction to the list. He begins with a statement that will set the tone for the rest of his comments and indeed is indicative of his outlook while compiling this list. He states, quote, The Bible is riddled with repetitions and contradictions, things that the Bible bangers would be quick to point out in anything that they want to criticize. End quote. Now, two thoughts come to mind when reading comments like this one. Well, more come to mind, in fact, but I, I have to cut it off somewhere. My first reaction is to wonder how objective the following article will be when the author thinks it's reasonable to use terms like Bible banger to describe those with whom he disagrees. While it may get a rise from those who already have made up their mind to agree with whatever uh, is to follow, regardless of how poorly it's researched or informed, um, a kind of uh, cheerleading or, or banner waving. It's really more autobiographical about Merritt's own biases than it is about what a Christian would or would not do. My second comment in regards to the statement is that the Bible, my second comment is in regards to the statement that the Bible is, quote, riddled with repetitions, end quote. Maybe it's just me but I didn't know repetitions were inherently a bad thing, let alone irrational or an evidence for falsification. In fact, repetition is a fundamental aspect of most successful pedagogical methods. To repeat is to remember, one could say. Why Merritt thinks that asserting that the Bible repeats itself as if it were a negative is really just beyond me. He then preempts the actual list of contradictions by just rattling off several of the kind of things that he believes to be compelling contradictions. Um, however, rather than dealing with them at this point, I'm going to move them to the top of the list and deal uh, at, that at this point with preliminary procedural comments that he makes about the methodology of those who have responded to him concerning this list. Um, he lists 
six different kinds of responses that he claims to typically get, then gives a quick little quip or so in response. Now I'm gonna read his list and his quips uh, and then respond accordingly. Number one, quote, this is to be taken metaphorically, end quote, to which he responds, quote, in other words, what is written is not what is meant. I find this entertaining, especially for those who decide what isn't to be taken as other than the absolute word of God, which just happens to agree with the particular thing they happen to want, end quote. Now, besides what he finds entertaining, this is a very common mistake among fundamentalists, both anti-theistic and Christian. The mistake is to think that a passage is to be read either with wooden literalism or else it's just total allegory that means something completely different. Notice he says that metaphor is that, quote, what is written is not what is meant, end quote. Now, imagine that I were to tell you that I went to a concert and the whole town was there. Would you think I was either making a factual claim that every last resident down to the person, or even since I said town, that this includes all the infrastructure, building, roads, signs, etc., that all of that was at the concert, or else that I had some super secretive and allegorical meaning that was to be read as something other than what I meant? No. This kind of use of language is just, it's just commonplace part of what i mean is how i use rhetorical devices in the case of the town i'm using hyperbole the problem is that when we talk about language depending on the context the authorial intent the elocutionary intent the audience and all kinds of other factors we can say things in a technical and woodenly literal sense sure but we can also say things in a roughly literal sense. We can say things in a metaphorical or hyperbolic sense, but with a literal meaning. We can say something in a symbolic uh, sense, but with a literal meaning. We can say something symbolically and with a symbolic meaning, and on and on and on and on. To expect that everything that the Bible says should be interpreted as woodenly literal, especially when they didn't really have that category of literature back in the ancient Near East is to just run roughshod not only over the text, but also just on basic grammatical structures. Number two, quote, there was more there than, end quote, to which he responds, quote, this is used when one verse says there was A and another verse says there was B. So they decide there was A and B, which is said nowhere. This makes them happy since it doesn't say there wasn't A plus B, but it doesn't say there was A plus B plus Little Green Martians. This is often the same crowd that insists theirs is the only possible interpretation, i.e. only A, and the only way. I find it entertaining that they don't mind adding to verses." End quote. Two things strike me about this. Again, besides what he finds entertaining, first is the comment about the group that insists that theirs is the only interpretation. Now, I honestly haven't met many people like that, and I know a lot of Christians. This is a common catchphrase used among anti-theists, but uh, 
I think that they just confuse someone saying what they think is the best interpretation with them saying it's the only interpretation. I also think that something that feeds into this is that some interpretations are rejected, as if all interpretations should be valid. Now, in Shakespearean studies, just to give you an example, in Shakespearean studies, there is a common question about Hamlet. When we read Hamlet, we see him go a little insane, right, during the middle of the book. Now, scholars have long posed the question, did Shakespeare write Hamlet as being crazy or crazy like a fox? That is, is Hamlet's character actually meant to be read as having a mental break, a real mental break, or are we supposed to read it as an elaborate ruse that Hamlet is putting on to discover the truth about the death of his father? Now, there's legitimate disagreement over that, but that does not mean that it's equally likely that Shakespeare wanted us to think that what was meant was that secretly one night uh, Hamlet was abducted by aliens who altered his personality just to see how much trouble they could get poor Hamlet into in the state of Denmark. Simply because we might think that there are a number of valid possible interpretations, uh, but that there are also some that are completely out to lunch, it doesn't follow that we're somehow insisting that ours is the only interpretation. We just think the one that we hold to might be the most compelling. In fact, there are a lot of verses where I don't really take a strong, I don't really take a stance, let alone a strong stance, because I see that there are multiple interpretations. All of them are good. I'm not really sure which one, which one is the best. I have quite a few places like that. Now, the other observation about his comment uh, that struck me was just how illogical it was. He might not like that his contradictions aren't actually contradictions because there are valid third or fourth options available, but that doesn't mean that posing these questions or these options is absurd. For those of you who don't quite know what he, what he meant or what he was getting at, let me just give you an example. And since these will surely come up in his list, I'm actually going to give you a non-biblical example so as not to take away from my responses when we get to those places in the list for those of you who are going to be following along. Now, imagine that you asked me what I did yesterday, and I told you that I went to work, then I went to the grocery store, then I came home and had dinner. You then see my wife later in the day and ask her how her day was yesterday. She says she went to work, then she met me at the grocery store and we went shopping together, then came home and had dinner with me. Later on, you see a third friend and ask them about how their day was yesterday, and they say they stayed home for most of the day, but they came over to my house and had dinner with myself and my wife. Now, which one of us is lying? Well, none of us, presumably. There's no contradiction. Giving more or giving less details of an event than other people retelling that same event is not a contradiction, or it's not even an indication of a falsehood. If you only talk to one of us, you might have a less robust understanding of what took place, but in asking all three of us, you have a fuller idea of what actually happened. Should I say that we have a contradiction and we contradicted each other because none of us say, well, so-and-so wasn't there? If we had to expressly omit every person who wasn't there, 
well then that would become an extremely tedious way to talk. Um, we'll find a bunch of these in the list, especially when we get to the post-resurrection um, questions about how many angels were at the tomb where one says one and one says two. That Again, that's not really a contradiction if one of them is only telling part of the story and one of them is telling a different part of the story. They're not they're not actually contradicting each other even though they might be telling um, distinct sides of the story. Number three, it has to be understood in context, end quote, to which uh, Merritt responds, I find this amusing, or quote, I find this amusing because it comes from the same crowd that likes to push likewise extracted verses that support their particular view. Often, it is just one of the verses in the contradictory set which is supposed to be taken as the truth when, if you add more to it, it suddenly becomes out of context. How many of you, how many of you have gotten just John 3.16 taken out of all context thrown at you? I'm actually not, to be honest, not quite sure what his point is on this. At one point, he seems to be mocking that we should take the verses in context, um, that he somehow thinks it's absurd that the Christian would say we should read these verses in their original contexts. But then in another point, he seems to want to defend that taking them out of context is acceptable because Christians do it also. But is that really reasonable? That just because some Christians tear passages out of context, that the skeptics should be able to do it also? Or should we just say that it uh, that any time anyone takes a verse out of a context, it's bad? Um, I mean, why would we stoop to the lowest behavior of other people? That just doesn't seem reasonable to me. Um, would he say that we shouldn't try to understand texts in their historical, sociological, geographical, cultural, literary, etc. context? I mean, surely if I were to cite something that Merritt had said and made it appear that he was affirming the inerrancy of the Bible, he would be the first one to cry out that I had taken his words out of context. Context is king in interpretation and understanding texts. Number four, quote, there was just a copying writing error, end quote, to which he responds, quote, this is sometimes called a transcription error, as in where one number was meant and an incorrect one was copied down, or what was quoted wasn't really what was said, but just what the author thought was said. And that's right. I'm not disagreeing with events. I'm disagreeing with what is written, which is apparently agreed that it is incorrect. This is an amusing misdirection to the problem that the Bible itself is wrong. Now, I'm not actually sure when he produced this list, but from the age of the resources, I might guess it was a while back. Either that or he doesn't know that there has been decades, in some case centuries, of scholarship and research into these areas. This is basically an objection to textual criticism, the field of study that has revealed many cases where we did think that the text said something, then we found out that the original autograph likely said something else. We found lots of other manuscripts, earlier manuscripts, better manuscripts, 
and we can actually trace where the error came into the manuscript. Um, does he only mock it because this makes his list less reliable? Basically, he's objecting to um, all scholarship from all sides on the issue on this one. It could be a function of how old his list is. I haven't really been able to find much online about him. Um, besides that he's a marine biologist, there's a very brief bio, um, but I can't find the date of when he was even alive, when he lived, who he was, um, where he's from, or when this list was produced. This list could have been produced a long time ago, um, long before textual criticism really became a strong academic subject. Number five, quote, that is a miracle, end quote, to which he just quips, quote, naturally. That is why it's stated as a fact, end quote. Here I think he's just rejecting miracles out of hand. His comment isn't really even a reasonable, a reasonable objection. If a miracle occurred, then yes, it should be stated as a, as a fact. If it didn't actually occur and it's stated as a fact, then it's wrong. But there's nothing uh, in principle that's wrong about stating something as a fact. Um, this comment is, again, more autobiographical about his own worldview than it is a well-thought-out comment relating to the text that he's dealing with. Number six, God works in mysterious ways, to which he responds, quote, a useful dodge when the speaker doesn't understand the conflict between the, what the Bible says and what they wish it said, end quote. Now, while I don't particularly like this type of response from Christians either, I wonder if he misses something interesting about this point. What this comment basically says is, well, we don't really know why. Why is this interesting? Because he's previously mocked the certainty of believers, even though most, like I, I, I protested, I don't think most believers have as much certainty as I think he thinks they have. Um, but he now gives an example of a lack of certainty. If I were to say, well, God works in mysterious ways, I'm not saying anything of certainty. I'm actually completely claiming ignorance about why some event happened. I don't know. God works in mysterious ways. Now, I don't think that that often this really is a kind of, um, I'm sorry. I do think that often this really is used as a kind of stop think for many Christian fundamentalists. But I've, I've never really heard any well thought out or academically minded Christian really make this kind of response. I don't think I've ever made the God works in mysterious ways response. I've never seen any um, apologists really make it, never seen any um, biblical scholars, textual scholars, theologians. I, I just don't really see anyone making this this as a response. Um, so yeah, I, I, I try to stay with, I, I can understand why he doesn't like this response, um, which is one of the reasons why I try to stay away from it and um, hopefully you won't hear me use it at all during this time. Um, I also hope that I sh would need to resort to, to this type um, to deal with such a feebly shallow list um, as this list of supposed contradictions that Merritt himself um, gives us. So 
With that said, I know this was a little bit shorter of an episode, only about 23 minutes or so. But with that said, we're going to wrap up next time on the Freed Thinker podcast. We're going to be continuing this. We'll start looking at the first set of biblical contradictions put up by Merit. Remember, if you have any questions, you can reach me on my blog at www.logical-theism.blogspot.com. Or you can find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash the Freed Thinker Podcast. Take care, everybody, and we'll see you again soon here on the Freed Thinker Podcast. Have a great day.